This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, I'm doing something quite different. I had the great privilege of interviewing one of the most prominent community pulpit rabbis in the country, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. He is the head rabbi at Boca Raton Synagogue, BRS, in, of course, Boca Raton, Florida. But he also is someone with a great national profile. He writes widely, has an active social media presence, and has really cultivated a large following. A good friend of mine, Yitzi and Nancy Preter, brought Rabbi Goldberg to Baltimore as a scholar in residence this past weekend. February 2022, and they asked that I lead a question and answer session interview with him Saturday night at a Malava Malka post Shabbos reception. And I had the great privilege of doing that. And I decided to release that interview as a podcast here on Jews You Should Know. However, I'd like to note a number of ways in which this particular interview, as fascinating as I believe it was, is different from most, if not all of my other shows. First of all, most of my conversations are much more biographical in nature. Use people's narrative timelines to springboard into their career pursuits or their other activities, but really I'm framing the conversation with their life story. This is a much more topical, issues-oriented discussion. We do get a little bit of his background, a little bit of his biography, but in many ways it's the inverse of the normal, whereby the community issues and the discussions then give us a little bit of a window into Rabbi Goldberg's life and not the other way around. Secondly, this is much more what I would call inside baseball than most episodes. I really strive that my episodes in general should be, first of all, accessible to anyone from any Jewish background, which means a limited amount of Hebrew or technical phrases and also addressing topics that have universal interest within the Jewish community. This interview is a little bit more niche. It's focused, first of all, mostly on the Orthodox community and challenges and issues that arise therein, although I do believe that it has a fascinating issue set for anyone to think about who cares about Jewish life in the modern world. It also does use quite a bit of specific or technical references, whether that's Hebrew words or Yiddish words, or just references to various Torah teachings and things like that that not everyone may be familiar with. I apologize ahead of time. I do believe you will get 90%, if not more, of the content, even without a extensive yeshiva background education. But nonetheless, I am putting that out there at the beginning here so that no one feels disenfranchised. And you understand that this was a live conversation that took place in front of a fairly religious crowd in the heart of the Baltimore Jewish community. Otherwise, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation, as I certainly did both in the moment and reviewing it afterwards. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments or questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with nationally renowned rabbinic personality, Jewish communal leader, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Special thank you, Rabbi Rose. Mard Asra, and um, in particular, uh, another special thank you to my dear friends uh, Yitzi and Nancy Preter for hosting this whole Shabbos, for inviting me. I was zochet to know your father Yitzi, 
Chaim. Um, who unfortunately was taken from us in uh, what feels like all too early, but I know that all the chesed, all the incredible work that you do in the community, locally, nationally, internationally, is a zchus for his neshama, and for uh, all the inspiration, Emir Tashem will gather here tonight that will accrue from our conversation, and has accrued from all the conversations over Shabbos, should likewise continue to be a credit to his holy neshama. And with that, Rabbi Goldberg, welcome. Thank you. First of all, how was your first Shabbos, I think, ever in Baltimore? First Shabbos ever in Baltimore. And by the way, I live now in Silver Spring, so you could be honest. How was it? There we go. Fantastic. Amazing, amazing community. A huge thank you to the Mardasra for uh, generously hosting and allowing and enabling me to uh, speak over time. Too long. But thank you so much for sharing your holy pulpit. And to the Predators, dear new friends, for hosting us. Incredible hospitality. What a beautiful, beautiful Shabbos, and continue your leadership here in Baltimore and beyond. But the Baltimore community is a beautiful community, and obvious, it seems like the easy thing to say when you're sitting in Baltimore up here. <laughs> um, but the truth is that you have a beautiful, beautiful community, and the people that we met and interacted with uh, our leaders, Askanim, but with humility and modesty, B'nai Torah, it's a Torah community with Torah values, and, and we walk away so inspired with so many ideas that we want to bring back to Boca. So thank you, thank you so much for hosting us this Shabbos. Beautiful. Uh, given how few visitors pass through Boca on a, on a regular basis, I'm sure you remember an encounter that we had outside BRS about a month ago. I was there on vacation, right. surprisingly. And um, we met, you were running out of shul, and uh, I quickly grabbed you and said, I'm going to be interviewing you next month. And you said, remember what you said to me? You said, I'm an open book. <laughs> Ask me anything you want. And your wife was standing right there, and she gave you a little look, and you said, you said, well, my wife thinks a little too open. So, right. <laughs> so we'll try to balance. But we're going to go with your sheet, and not hers tonight. Okay, good. And, uh, but we'll start with a softball. That's generally how I pop That's how you pop it, good. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's start, though, with a softball, and then we'll, we'll, okay. we'll ratchet it up. Um, just give us a little bit of a brief biographical overview, and tell us where you grew up, what, what your, you know, your background was, and particularly with, maybe with an emphasis on some of the Torah personalities that influenced you along the way? Sure. So first of all, the disclaimer before any of these question and answer is I don't necessarily have authority on any answer. These are just my opinions, right or wrong, but hopefully they stimulate, as the Rav said, us to think and continue conversations, not about my biography and life, but the questions I'm sure that will follow afterwards. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, <laughs> you got, thank you to the one Teaneck person here. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, went to Yavin Academy, I went to Frisch for high school. I had an experience in 11th grade, in particular, that got me to really reflect. Baruch Hashem, I grew up in a, in a from home with parents who were wonderful role models to me of Yiddishkeit, uh, but God really, really got me to think about and address my own Yiddishkeit a little bit more seriously, to take it more seriously. It was an interaction I had on a school bus trip um, with some of my friends and my peers that age. I was disturbed by something they were doing. They challenged and threw it back in my face. Why are you disturbed by what we pick and choose? You also pick and choose. And you know, sometimes someone holds a mirror up to you like we talked about this morning. And when you see in the mirror, you have, you have a choice to make. And um, that summer really set me on a different trajectory of life. I went to Marsha Kolal that summer. From there, I went to Karen Biavna for two years. I went to Shiv University. I was in Rav Shech Tashir for three years. Um, Baruch Hashem got married to an amazing wife, went to Gris Kolal, 
and learned there under of David Miller, who is another amazing influence in my life. Schechter, of course, is, is a gon, is a, is a gadol, is an enormous tamachacham, a posek. Um, what impressed me more and continues to, now we have this chus, I never dreamt this when I sat in his shir, but we host him almost every year. He stays at our house, we interact informally when the camera's off and the lights are off. And, and Schechter's gonus is unbelievable. His encyclopedic memory and knowledge is extraordinary. It did then and it still now gives me goosebumps. But it's his midos, it's his humility, it's who he is in reality, which continues to um, inspire me even more. Rav David Miller also, Rav David Miller, the Rosh Kol, in the Gris Kol in Yerushalayim, enormous tzaddik, enormous tamachacham, very, very special, special person, had it, and has a huge influence on my life. Came back to, uh, to Boca, we hadn't heard to Boca at the time. Nobody had it, and it's okay, no, it's okay. <laughs> most hadn't. You know, I, I try to rate where Boca is on the map by all the Jewish organizations and magazines that list the candle lighting times in cities across America. You know, is Boca listed or is Boca not listed? So um, we hadn't heard of Boca, but we heard there was a colo. We were considering a colo in LA, a colo in Boca. This gave me the opportunity to continue to learn while also beginning to teach and explore. I thought I was going into Chinuch. Uh, it's a separate conversation. I'm sure we want to get to other things, but why I decided to give my life to Avodah Sakodesh, what inspired me to do that? That was not always the trajectory I was on. It's not the family I come from, whatever the reason was, but I thought I was going to go into Chinuch when I came to Boca. I credit my, my amazing wife who really redirected me and thought who I was, my skill set, and my tolerance level. When I go now to teach, and occasionally the schools in our community invite me in <laughs> to teach one period, one class, question and answer, I, I'm like done for the day. I can't, I have such awe for our machanachim, our rebbeim, who can go for hours on end or period after period and, and deal with trying to hold the attention of these young people. All that goes into molding and shaping these neshamas. I'm absolutely blown away. But while I was in the kol, I already started to get my, my feet wet in the rabbanas. And in Boker Aton, the assistant rabbi at the time was Rabbi Yehoshua Fass who left to start Nefesh B'Nefesh, and I became the assistant rabbi. And then Rabbi Brander, my predecessor, left, and I became the, the Rav in 2005. And so I said at my installation then, I know there was a, a recent installation, I said then that I approached this as I did my marriage, that I intend for this to be forever. This is the level of commitment. This is where I hope to be. And this is the only relationship of the sort that I, that I hope to know. And Baruch Hashem, they haven't thrown me out yet. Funny, you mentioned Rabbi Fass. You know, this was this is the second time we were supposed to do this. Uh, there was you know a false start before a couple a month or so ago, so I interviewed him for the podcast right before, and uh, I told him, hey, this is Moshe Shabbos. I'm going to be talking to Rabbi Goldberg, your old your old buddy. He said, please give him a big hug, send him regards. So I don't know if that still applies for the second time. I can't I can't pause it for him, but he does send regards. At least he meant to before. There's no paltacher on a hug. Paltacher on a hug. That's it. Okay, so let's uh, let's ramp up the degree of difficulty now a little bit. Um, Solve the tuition crisis. Go. No, I'm Go have some soup. So I think what's really interesting to me, at least, you know, having followed your journey somewhat from afar and seen kind of where you have stationed yourself in sort of the broader constellation of the Torah world. So you seem to be a person who values balance, who specifically wants to straddle multiple worlds, multiple circles, let's say. And you're not afraid of tension points or of areas of dissonance two values or situations that might seem at odds with one another, but that perhaps can generate some sort of synthesis. So I, I want to ask you a series of questions that sure. uh, speak to some of those topics. So we'll start with, a, I think, a pretty difficult one because you know, our community has been rocked, not just recently, but in particular recently, 
like quite a few scandals and difficult challenges, charismatic leaders who have fallen, who have, say, failed us. And it, on the one hand, we know that passion and charisma are vital to attract people, especially young people, to draw people in, to, to light that fire. I know that you know, I was in Boko when Moshe Weinberger Shlita was there for, uh, for Brengen. Uh, I was in the crowd, and uh, the level of, of animation and power was, was amazing. And my, my high school age son was there, and he was, you know, he was lit on fire from it. Night. It was beautiful. On the other hand, there's a tremendous danger to hero worship and the, again, to the charismatic leader persona. As a community, how can we sort of balance those two? How can we embrace those who have that kind of talent, that dynamism, but also be careful and mindful of, of its pitfalls? And as, dare I say, a person who maybe has some of that charisma, how do you personally solve for that and ensure that you are staying in a safe and healthy place? It's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I, I don't know if I have that charisma at all. I aspire to not have charisma, but I aspire to tap into whatever the tools that are necessary to try to inspire myself and through that to extend that to hope to inspire others. I think that we have to place an emphasis on substance over form. Form is important as a delivery mechanism for the substance, but it has to be people of substance, people of value, people who are adding value and adding content, and the form is the vehicle to get the message across. But when it's all about the form, and it's all about the glitz, and it's all about the lights, and it's all about the influence and being an influencer, and when you examine the substance, you say, what's there? It's hollow. It's empty. It's really much more about the fame than it is about the content is when we should have concern. It's when, when the flag should go up for us. So who we admire and whom we should get our children to admire, who we should follow, literally or figuratively, online or offline, I think, and what I try to do in my life, are look for people of tremendous substance, of depth, people of humility. The Gemara says that a Rebbe, a Doma Lamalach Hashem is based on a Pasuk in Malachi, that we should pursue people who are Doma Lamalach Hashem. We should pursue people, which is a very high standard for those who are trying to communicate and transmit Torah. It's an expectation, a standard that's hard, if not impossible. It depends which Malach, maybe, you know. <laughs> depends which Malach, that's true. That's true. Um, but I think that that's an enormous guiding force for us, is that the Torah and Chazal are telling us it's not just about who's got the most fame, the most followers, the most glitz. I, I had this epiphany a few years ago when we bring in a lot of speaker scholars and residents, Rabbanim, Rosh Hashiva series, and I had this very sad realization one Shabbos because there was a few scholars and residents based closely together, and there was one person who had an enormous depth, substance, brilliance, but their delivery mechanism was somewhat dry and stale, and slow. And a few weeks later, there was a person who was all show and glitz, screaming and modulating their voice and flailing their arms and drawing everyone's attention. And I thought about, could I repeat what they said? Did that really have an impact on me? And I, I didn't find that there was a lot there. And after each of those spoke, I heard our Mispalalim, the members, and the contrast of the reaction was that the second one, oh, it was amazing, it was amazing. And the first one was so boring, it was terrible, why'd you bring him, don't bring him back again. And I realized that it's up to us, the consumer, it's up to us, the, the ones who are listening and looking, is to try to get past the superficial. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I try to work on my own speaking style and to tap into that which will attract attention and keep people's attention and get the message across and enable it to penetrate. I don't think there's a mitzvah in being dry and stale and boring. 
and monotone. I think it's a mitzvah to learn the tools necessary to get it across. But we have to be able to, to cut it open and to see what's really there. So the first thing is really substance over form. Form is really wonderful and it's important to communicate the substance, but we should be drawn to the people and turn to the people who have the substance, number one. Number two, there's an incredible Drosha Saran. The Ran writes, Moshe Rabbeinu Kfad Pek, Kfad Lashan. I mean, it totally makes no sense whatsoever that Hashem would recruit someone specifically with a speech impediment, a horrific orator, to be the leader of the Jewish people who has to march into the palace and make demands of Paro and stand in front of an entire nation and convince them with their slave mentality to see themselves as free people. Why? He couldn't find a charismatic speaker. And the Drosha Saran says an incredibly important yisod. He says, because Baruch wanted to make clear, lest we generations later say, you know what, maybe these miracles never happened, and maybe the Torah Kadosha doesn't have truth, and maybe Moshe was like the amazing motivational speaker of his time. So he stood on the stage, and he stood with the mic, and he got everyone's attention, and he pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. So Kodesh Baruch specifically positioned somebody who no one would ever suspect, nobody could ever accuse, nobody would ever say it was his charisma, it's not because of the truth. There's truth and there's depth. So we need to be very, very careful and cautious. We have to have high expectations of our leaders. We have to be exceptionally, exceptionally careful. I'm not going to say when there's smoke, there's fire, because that's an unfair position to take. There are innocent people who have been falsely accused and lives that are ruined, even when there was smoke. So I think we have to hesitate before we go all in, and I think this is where you were headed, in saying where there's smoke, there's fire. However, where there's smoke, we should pay even more careful and close attention. When there's rumor and innuendo, when there's behavior and attitudes that stand out to us that something doesn't feel right or seem right. You know, again, without speaking about anything head on, but you know, wh why would a Rav be meeting with young girls alone, secluded late at night, without the, what, what the general secular world knows today are the best practices of a window, of a camera, of an open door, of never being alone. And if that's happening and there's a pattern of it happening, even if nothing egregious took place, but that poor judgment alone should raise flags. So we have to be vigilant as a community in terms of our expectations and demands of best practices, best behavior. We live in such a world that we need to be above board and above even suspicion. And as consumers, we should look for personalities who practice what they preach. And I'll close, because this will be all night if I answer every question. You see the theme that's emerging in the showers. But I'll close by saying this. For a long time, we've, Baruch Hashem, had an amazing speakers come, and many of them stay with us. In fact, early on, when I was an assistant rabbi, and I was in charge of the adult education program, I would recruit and invite people, not based on the community, but who I could spend time with, put their phone number in my Rolodex, have access to learn from them, and turn to them going forward. Now we know why the Maccabees came the next week, <laughs> after I was there. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I did that early on, and I've continued with it. But I saw two patterns emerging. There are the people who practice what they preach. Whatever they give speeches about, you see them living it even more when the lights and camera are off. And there are the people who are demanding and they're high maintenance and they're difficult and they act totally different when no one's around. And it's such a turnoff and it's really deeply disturbing. And just one example, not of the second, but one of the times that Rabbi Crowen came to speak and I remember him, he, he intentionally made his way to find our custodian to thank him for setting up that night and for cleaning up that night and for enabling his visit to be possible. He didn't do that because I was gonna tell this story or someone would write it in a book about him. He did it because it's who he is. He practices what he preached. When he talks, 
That's who Hayah Omer, his life is what he's talking about. And not everybody is that way. So we have to be educated and careful consumers. Just because someone has a lot of followers or a lot of listens, a lot of posters, puts out a lot of CDs, just because they have a lot of follows, doesn't mean that there's somebody who's Malach Hashem Tzavakos, who's worthy of our attention and worthy of our learning from them. I think the burden is on us to be very careful and very, and very vigilant in it. You know, you mentioned all the speakers you brought in. Um, I remember once being in Boca a couple years ago, and I, I just picked off, you know, the shelf, one of the, uh, the guide for the year of all the speakers coming in. It was like, it was like a phone book. I, mean, it was like, it was, I think it was Rabbi Tzinyungreit, Leal Shalom was there, and it was many, many famous personalities. And it, was, it was incredible who passed through there. And one of the amazing, you know, observations I had was that the sheer diversity. Just when I was there this past month, it was the Shabbos before I came was Rabbi Bender, from, from Darche, and then it was uh, Moshe Weinberger during the week, and then it was the Maccabees, like I mentioned afterwards. And it, it's really diverse, but I think that is a reflection of, again, the way that you, again, if I could presume, the way that you want to position yourself and, and see yourself. And, and in that regard, I want to ask you how you see the trend of the, of the modern Torah world. Because I, I, I personally perceive sort of competing in, in certain ways, um, dissonant trends. One is, is kind of a flattening of the world, right? The, the internet has been a democratizing force. People can listen to YU Torah if they you know, grew up going to Lakewood or Punovich or wherever it might be, and people have access to all kinds of speakers. You've written for Mishpacha magazine. You've you know, been on headlines, and, which tends to have a more maybe right, center, or right of center audience. You have people like Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, who's you know, straddled the Chabad and other worlds. You have these kinds of trends. You have these pockets. Yet on the other hand, we live in this incredibly polarized world where the walls seem higher and higher. And I feel like both trends are happening at once. Do you agree that there's two things happening or do you think one of these strains is really the dominant? And where, where are we going? Another great question. Thank you. These are great questions. Um, you should have a podcast. I agree. It's fantastic. You should listen to the podcast. By the way. Okay. How do you know I don't? It's fantastic. <laughs> Jews, you should know. It's there you fantastic. Go. Everybody should listen to it, rate Thank and you. review. Thank you. I'm not much. allowed to say that about my own, but I could say it about yours. Right. Um, it is a great question, and I, and I thought and think a lot about this, a lot about this, because as you've suggested several times tonight, this is, you know, what you see is what you get about me, and maybe to a fault, maybe I overshare, uh, too transparent in some ways, um, but this is how I live my life. And I think it's a beautiful way for others to live their life. And it's not for everyone, and I don't judge those who don't choose it. But what I have found is there is enormous community that don't have a voice and don't have a vehicle. They're not organized as a community and a movement who believe in it. What I'm talking about is this, what I call the Shara Kolel, based on the Arizal. There were 12 tribes and 12 entrances to the base of Mikdash, but there was a 13th for the Sharakol, the one who didn't know whom they belonged to, and the Arizal's Tfilas for the 13th gate, for the person who doesn't know which Nusach, and this notion of this gate, for the Jew who says, I love all the other gates, I've walked through them, I visited them, I feel connected with them, but I don't want to be put in a box. As I've written and I've quoted several times, or Blachman, a Rebbe at Kambiyamna says, you'll put me in a box when I'm dead. But while I'm alive, don't limit me and don't put me in a box because I feel connected to authentically and genuinely, not out of fear for my kids' shaduchim, and not out of fear because I don't want to feel insecure, not out of fear, but because I genuinely can feel simultaneously Ashkenazi and Sephardi, simultaneously yeshivish 
and call it the best of the, the Y world. I can simultaneously feel Litvish and Hasidish. I could simultaneously feel Hungarian and Amayeka. I could take the best of each of these communities and the rich tradition of Torah of these communities and blend it and synthesize it into who I am, not in a competing way, but in a way where I feel connected to each. So it's not that if you say, when I wrote an article about this, and I titled it to get people to read it, but also got a lot of, not everybody loved the title, where I said, I'm not a modern Orthodox rabbi. And in the article I said, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed or apologetic of having gone to Yeshiva's Rabbi Tukhanan, that Rav Shechter is my Rebbe, that I see the miracle of the modern state of Israel, and I thank Hashem for it, and whatever other things you want to identify or associate with it, it's not that I'm embarrassed or ashamed or apologetic or defensive. I just refuse to be limited or put in a box that that's who you are, that's who your community is. You just listed a series of speakers, but in that same month, we also had the Kalava Rebbe, and in the same month, we also had a Night for Israel, which you might have heard about, that had <laughs> partnerships and- Fill me in, I'm not- obviously, <laughs> And uh, it was a beautiful night, Ambassador David Friedman spoke, and our Governor Ron DeSantis, and Senator Scott, and Ben Shapiro, and, and others. So there's an enormous diversity, and they're not in conflict, and it's not living. Nora Futner writes this in a letter to his Talmud, who says, I feel like I'm living a dual life. And I go to work, but I'm a yeshiva bachar, and he said, you know, if you have a room in a hotel and a room at, ho at home, you're living a dual life. But if you have multiple rooms in your own home, you're living one life, one home that has multiple rooms. So there is a synthesis in the ability to have all of that. And what I have found, both in trying to, to, to live this, and for a long time in our community, provide this. What I mean by that is the diversity of the people who come, men and women, leaders, people of different backgrounds, and they're to speak to different things, is to try to educate the community and expose the community to different people and different ways of thinking. So that they can make a choice and say, you know, that's not entirely me, but I had a lot of preconceived notions and I learned something. And I feel connected to at least part of that. And to expose the community to the beautiful fabric of Klal Yisrael, of Torah, and of Armasora, and of different components, it's even outside of it. I don't mean antithetical to it, but I mean not necessarily towards that, towards that goal. So we've been doing it for a long time in our community, and then with the ability to publish and Corona providing the ability to really be able to share using, using technology and the platforms available, I've really tried to espouse this a little bit more and live this myself, it's who I am. And the feedback has been enormous and extraordinary. So here's my takeaway. There's a polarization and there's divide, and it's because the extremes on both sides are screaming the loudest. There are extremes and there are those who are interested and they profit off of dividing Klal Yisrael. There are zealots, there are kanayim, there are extremists, there are fundamentalists on each side and in every direction. And it's true, by the way, politically, and it's true religiously, and it's true in the Torah community, but it doesn't represent, A, necessarily the MS, and it doesn't represent the masses who are intimidated or silenced, but when they're given a voice, will say, that's not who I am and who I want to be. When on our podcast we had Eli Palay, the owner of Mishpacha Magazine, and he talked about Mishpacha, Mishpacha Magazine, one of the breakthroughs of Mishpacha Magazine, and there are legacy Torah magazines, Aleya Mashalom, that are no longer here, but Mishpacha and Argonaut magazines like it have had a staying power, is that you never know from week to week who's going to be on the cover. And what they found from their enormous subscriber list, and those who buy it in stores all over the world, is that one of the united things about Klai Yisrael is that they want to be exposed to other parts of Klai Yisrael.
And maybe those communities or its leaders are afraid for them to be exposed, or the extreme elements within it are trying to put up walls, but now that they can't around those walls, or over the walls, or under the walls, or through the walls, whether online or offline, by subscribing to these Torah magazines that have a rabbinic board and are guided by Torah personalities, but that you never know on the cover, could be a Sephardi Gadol, or Litvish Gadol, or Hasidish Gadol, or, or a Shechter. They're not afraid to put on the cover as well, which I think is a great credit to them, to not be defensive or afraid. It shouldn't be something one gets credit for, but sadly in our world it is. So both of what you said are true. There are extremists, and there are those who profit and gain and benefit. There are zealots who have an interest in creating divides and lines and putting up walls. But what I see is that the masses of Klai Yisrael, even those who belong to a shahr, even those who say, this is who I am, and it's proudly who I am, but they're happy and excited to be exposed to others. They want to travel. We were talking earlier today, when David Lichtenstein was on, I'm not plugging our podcast, but in the conversation with David Lichtenstein, you know, he talked about a story, an episode, we had a driver, and he wanted his driver to go to Toronto to pick up his son, and the driver said, I can't. And he said, what do you mean you can't? I pay you, please go pick up my son in Toronto. And he said, I can't because I don't have a passport. And he turned to this driver and he said, First of all, it's a problem, Halavai, we should all have. But he turned to his driver and he said, what do you mean you don't have a passport? You're a 60-year-old retired policeman, smart guy, you don't have a passport? And he said, no, I've never left the country. And he said, how could you be in your 60s and, and you never explored what else is out there? You've never left this country. And the same is true in Torah. There's a Torah passport. There's a Torah passport that says, it doesn't mean wherever I travel, wherever I visit, I want to live there. I want to come home where I'm comfortable, where I feel safe, where I feel secure. I want to come home. But I have a Torah passport and I'm willing to travel, I'm willing to explore, I'm willing to see what's out there. And what I have found, and what I think the subscriber base of Mishpacha and others like it will tell you, is that the extremists are the minority and the masses of Klai Yisrael, even if they feel comfortable, safe, secure at home, are excited to have a passport and the ability to travel. So I think it's a very resonant approach to, again, to a lot of people, and I think this shul in particular has epitomized that for many years, and uh, past Mordas, Rabbi Hauer, I know, is uh, someone who represents that as well. But do you believe that this is an approach that can work for young people as well, or do the younger people need to be grounded first in a particular ideology? Do they, do they need the, the passion and the, the sense of, call it triumphalism even, that their particular way, their schnitt, their lane, their shar, is the shar, and then as they mature, as they become more sophisticated and nuanced in their thinking, they can begin to take in some other approaches. It depends maybe on the kid, it depends maybe on the family. And I think for the most part, you are right. This is something that you have to be mature and developed, you have to have a strong foundation before you can explore. What we're describing might be the third and the fourth and the fifth level of the house, but if you don't have a strong foundation, it will crumble. So if on day one you say, I'm gonna take my passport, I'm, 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 I've barely been at home, I never grew up at home, I never absorbed the values from at home. From day one, I'm leaving the home with my passport to travel and see the world. So for a lot, they'll walk away very confused, they'll run into a lot of trouble, they'll be attracted to the wrong things, they don't know how to make sense or synthesize or not have it contradict. You need to grow up first in a home, you need to first have a sense of who you are and where you come from and a foundation, and it can be built upon that. I will just add the caveat that I think there are exceptions. Because as you said, the democratization of the internet and the ability to be exposed to things that are out there, there are young people who are precocious and curious, who are inquisitive and have this thirst, and whether they're allowed or not allowed, or at home, or the library, or their friend's house, or the other device that their parents don't even know about, they might be exploring and searching. So either you can guide that thirst, 
with certain boundaries and safety to it, or if you try to squash it, they, they might pursue it in a different and an unhealthy way. So there might be exceptions to the rule. There might be a particular young person who needs to be given that flexibility and space even at a young age. But I do think that for the most part, I, I didn't feel this when I was that summer at Marsha Kolo. I was figuring out how to, how to make a landing on a Gemara. I'm not going to ask you for your Rabbi Cohen impersonation, by the way. Rabbi okay. Cohen. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't have heads or tails. I didn't know which way to hold up the Gemara. In those days, there was no art scroll. I was working out of a Sansino and a Jastro. There was Mysterious Nefesh for Torah in those days. It was Amelis and Yegiya. It was a totally different world. I'm sure somebody came by in the base measures and told you, Jastro is a Kaifer. <laughs> Correct. We had that conversation, too. But the Sansino, Mamash, was, was, you know, you needed a dictionary to translate the English and the Sansino to figure out what the Gemara was talking about. But, you know, so I didn't feel this way, and I didn't know this language, and I hadn't been exposed to those people. But I'm proud to tell you and excited to tell you that now I am. I'm, I'm not going to flex or boast, but I'll tell you that I'm going from here tomorrow to New York because I'm meeting a group of 25 guys from our shul. Every year we do a fly into New York for two days, every year, for the last several years. Rudely interrupted by Corona, but Baruch Hashem, Mir Hashem, we're back. Was there Corona in New York? I don't think I've said that. <laughs> or Florida for that matter. Rumor had, okay. <laughs> Rumor had it. Parts of, segments of it. So we fly in with 25 guys and we make our way around Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbanim, Bate Medrash, around New York. Florida has a lot of things, and there are wonderful yeshivas and mostos there. And another one coming, by the way. Amir Tashem, another <laughs> one coming. But not, not that legacy and not that stature yet. So we fly in, and I'll give you an example of our itinerary for this Monday, Tuesday, with the risk that you're going to follow us to New York and want to join us. And I share it, not to flex, but I share it to give you a sense of what we're bringing our guys. And by the way, I have guys on this trip, I'll, I'll tell you afterwards, the, the diversity of the guys on this trip. But we're going to see Rabbi Eitan Feiner, and we're going back to Shoyosh of Rabbi Yeager, and then we're going to Brooklyn to see Rav Reisman, Rabbi Brudney, and Rav David Cohn. And then we'll be in Muncie with Rav Ephraim Waxman, the Square Rebbe, and then we'll go, it won't be a conversation in the basic forest, but the Ribnitzer. And then we start out Tuesday morning, and we're going to YU, and we're meeting with a bunch of Rosh Yeshiva, Rebbeim in YU hit the farm sale, and then we'll uh, make our way back to Brooklyn, Ravav Mishore, and we'll go to the Oil of the Rebbe, pick up dinner to the airport and back. Now, last time we did this trip, there was a guy who, NYU, who grew up Babav, now lives in Boca. He's not externally still visibly... Sounds like a memoir, but from Babav, Babav to Boca, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be good. And when we walked out of the base medrash in NYU and he met at Rosh Yeshiva, he turned and he said to me, I totally should have gone here instead of Babav. Which was a funny line. <laughs> But what he meant to say is who he was and what appealed to him, and there's nothing wrong with Babov, Helega Babov. But whatever he grew up thinking, he saw a base medrash that was entirely different, he had never been exposed to. And there's a Ganaric community who might be the poster man for modern orthodoxy, Fabrenta Stark modern orthodoxy, a beautiful way. And you know, I was a little bit nervous. Revav, I'm sure his eyes can put a hole in the back of your head. And I don't know what he's going to say, how stark and strong he can be. And he walked out of Rav Amashur and his life was changed. He was blown away. Now, you come back to my example with the passport. My modern Orthodox friend is not moving to Rav Amashur's shul in Brooklyn. But he's so happy that he had a passport and he got to visit there. And he's so excited to go visit again now as a follow-up because of what it did to charge his life. And the other guy is not necessarily sending his kids. He's necessarily not sending his kids to YU. 
But he had a passport and he saw its base medrash and its Rosh Hashim and he understood how closer together the Torah world is than far apart. And I think, having worked hard to develop relationships across those spectrum, right? I told our guys when I met with them, I said, we're going to New York. I said, the people in New York in their entire lifetime won't sit and have conversations with this group of people together. You add that whole list together, you could spend your entire life growing up in the who's who of New York and you won't have this chance. So I've worked hard to develop these relationships and I can tell you that we're closer than ever together. Closer than ever together. That Torah unites and Torah is a uniting bond and theme. And there are differences and there are nuances and they're important. And they're machluks and l'shem shemayim. But we're closer, closer than ever. Closer than ever. I remember a few years ago, because here in Baltimore, I'll tell you this story. I wish I could find it. If anyone can, please send it to me. I don't think I dreamt it or imagined it. I know I read it. And I don't want to get into this from a controversial perspective, but one of the great gifts to so-called modern orthodoxy, again, I hate that label and term, because it means so many different things to different people, and I don't even know yet, left, know what it means. But one of the great gifts to it was open orthodoxy, which much of the Torah world was concerned by. And Ravon Feldman, in an interview, was being asked all about, it was all about open orthodoxy. And then someone said, well, what about modern orthodoxy? To which he replied, and this appeared in the publication, and I held my breath as I kept reading when I was reading this article. He said, oh, they're basically the same as us. What are you talking about? They're like with us. They're not this other conversation. They're basically the same as us. And I was like, wow, wow. What a gift they gave us and an opportunity to differentiate and to create, you know, who is aligned and who is together and who overwhelmingly has everything in common with so few differences in between. And you know, when sadly the zealots and the extremists they intimidate even our greatest gedolim. I could tell you this for a fact, having very recently gotten direct psak and encouragement. Oh, can I quote Rebbe? Multiple major poskim in America and Eretz Yisrael. No, don't use my name. Don't quote me, because there's a there's a fear, and these kanaim act in such a way that it's understandable why there's a lot to fear of them. But when they're not around and when the lights are off. The respect and the cooperation and the collaboration in the Torah world with its different segments is inspiring. So I'm very, very hopeful about where we're going, but the masses have to have the courage to find our voice, to create a community, and to actually silence and shut down the extremists who are not serving our interests. It sounds like an incredible trip, and uh, it sounds like it's not open for uh, people to tag onto, so, but maybe, maybe it can be replicated. Um, you mentioned that you've cultivated more of a, a kind of a national profile over the last number of years, I think, with the writing and unusually active presence on social media. How do you balance knowing how much time you should be devoting as a regular shtatrav, yershorav, you have Erevin and mikvos and all these different things and shilas and drushes and counseling and everything. Of course, you have an assistant rabbi and other, you know, it's a large, there's a team there, I know. But, and I don't know if you have you actively cultivated this national profile or is it something that's just emerged? And either way, how do you deal with the, uh, the inevitable tensions that I'm sure arise there? It was an accident. I didn't sit down with a strategy and say, you know, I'm pretty bored locally. I really need to expand my profile. There's money to be made and fame and it's a, I want my picture to hang. Or less cynically, there's influence to have. But it wasn't even that. It wasn't that I have such an important message that's so, more important than everyone else, that I really need to find my voice to get it out there. There was never, we've never ever had that conversation. I never sat down with that goal. It all happened accidentally. I'm happy 
to whatever degree it's there. I don't know that it's, it's there that much. But I'll tell you exactly how it happened, and it happened by accident. Every single thing I did, I started for Art Sibor. And then we live in a world that enables you to scale. Not in a way that competes or detracts or compromises what you're doing locally, but I think complements it. So we have, a, we have, a, you have a beautiful newsletter that's given out here in the shul. We have one, it's called The Weekly, that's uh, given out in our community. And uh, many, many years ago, when I was sick and tired of people saying to me, Rabbi, what do you do all day? Which is like a great question. <laughs> Nobody would ever ask a doctor or a lawyer, you know, what do you do all day? Like, you give a drush on Shabbos. Did you ever come out with any uh, good comebacks for that? <laughs> so what do you do all day, exactly? So what do you do all day? So I started a column called From the Rabbi's Desk. And I didn't, you know, it wasn't like a defensive posture, but I realized that the average people in the community don't know. It's the window into your life. Yeah, so I didn't say, well, I met with this person because they have shown bias issues <laughs> and I want to let you know how it's going. You know, I didn't, I didn't write Up, that. Update on the Goldbergs. <laughs> right, I didn't write that. But I did talk about, you know, the time that goes into planning the programming of the shul. Or I talked, I wrote articles about what it's like dealing with the mikvah or kashras, the vad, or whatever other community events. And I would, I would write every week something. And then there was this thing called the internet, and at the time blogs were really beginning and getting big, and someone suggested, or I found it, I said, you know, I write it anyway, it gets printed in our local newsletter, with a click of a button, you could also share it in a place that anyone can see it anywhere in the world, that sounds like it's worthwhile. And that's what I did. I kept just writing the column, but then I said, well, instead of just writing it about what I did this week to justify my salary, instead of just writing about what I did locally, I would try to take on issues and talk about them. But it was still based on meetings I had with people. So I met with a group of women struggling with infertility. We had a local support group for a long time, sensitivity and community, and I sat there bawling my eyes out, hearing what their life is like and insensitive things that are said. And I said, I have an audience and I have the ability to get their message out. So I wrote an article about infertility etiquette and our Shabbos tables, and questions we have, and things we take for granted, and how we bathe. And people with infertility all over were like, wow, it's amazing, and thank you. And I was like, I, I didn't do anything. I listened to them, and then I wrote this article. And the same can be true about when you fight and work on behalf in Aguna. People can have all kinds of opinions about solutions, not solutions, ranging from the, you know, rabbis created this problem, and they could have the solution, to I'm against prenuptial agreements, to but when you sat with someone and you've worked tirelessly and they're chained and they're shackled and they can't move on with their life and they can't find the happiness that they deserve and they're literally being abused by the fact that they can't move on, then, then you have a voice to be able to. So I was constantly having these meetings and I was like, thank you, because you're giving me my next article each time. You know, there's a person in our community, a young person suffers struggles with depression. So I said the most moronic thing you could say to someone with depression. What do you mean? But you have this, that, and the other thing, your life is so good, like just get out of bed and just, just choose to be happy. Which is the absolute worst thing you could ever say to anyone with depression. There is nothing more ignorant in the whole world, more hurtful in the whole world than what I had said. Now he happens to be an amazing, wonderful guy and a friend. So he pointed that out to me in a way that didn't make me feel like a nothing, but educated me. So I wrote a whole article about depression and mental health, that there shouldn't be a stigma, what we can do for those who we're exposed to, maybe have it, that if you're feeling it, you're not alone, this is what you could do about it. Why, I'm such a leader in the forefront. That's why people say things to me, you're gratitude. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I'm the luckiest person in the world that I get to meet people and then try to help by bringing that message out. That's how the article started. 
And the mishpacha asked, so I wrote one of those articles and I put it in there, and then I put it in our weekly also. So it's all still for our neighborhood and our community. It's just scaled up and shared with others. The same is true with every shir I give online. There's no shir I give online that's not for our community. Every one of those shirim is for our community, and then Corona struck, and everyone outside of New York maybe was locked down and shut down and distanced, and we couldn't give the shirim. So I took advantage of this tool called the internet and put them on there, and other people maybe found them or liked them. But I'm not, that's not a distraction for our community, it's for our community. Every sure I give, there's a camera, but I'm giving it to the people in the room, and if you're watching on the camera, you're a secondary audience. That's not who I'm talking to. And then lastly, whatever social media presence I had, which I was on early, because I was encouraged again by people. And why was I encouraged by people early? Because in the end of the day, Basher Husham, there's a world, you know this through your work, there's a world of people when a Motzei Shabbos are not being found in a shul, from Malava Malka to hear a couple rabbis speak. Their community, the place that they live is online. That's where they live. That's where they get ideas, it's where they get inspiration, it's where they get psach It's where they get guidance on how to kasher for Pesach. We could talk all night long, we'd probably all agree, is that a good phenomenon, a bad phenomenon? Is that positive, is it negative? If we could turn back the clock and have the option to never ever turn on this thing called the internet, knowing what we know now, would we turn it on or leave it off? Good debate. Good debate, right? But the reality is, do you want to deal with the reality Basher Husham, or you want to live in a make-believe utopian world of where you wish people were? So I heard that early on, and I went on. And there were people who were critical, concerned, including people very close to me. And I said, look, I don't use it. I don't put pictures of what I had for dessert, or that my kid kept me up all night, or my flight's delayed and I'm sitting in the airport. I don't, my rule with the internet is, if before the internet you'd never knock on your neighbor's door to start telling them all these things or showing them pictures of your kid on the first day of school, then don't do it on the internet. If you wouldn't do it in real life, can you imagine walking around the whole neighborhood? I just want to tell you about the card I gave my wife for Mother's Day and how she's the most amazing mother. Let me, read, would, that poem. Let me read that poem I want to read you. the poem. <laughs> I want to show you pictures of my kid on the first day of school. You go up and down the whole block. Who cares? My kid also went to school for the first day today. Like, who cares? And there's someone on the block who doesn't have kids. So my rule with the internet was, if I wouldn't do it in real life, why am I doing it on the internet? So I used it exclusively for shiurim and articles and to ask a thought-provoking question or share a quote I thought might move people. And you know what's happened? Fast forward to today, and again, without belaboring this point, but many of the very people who participated or even hosted the SEF about the internet have Twitter handles and stream their conventions on Twitter live, on Twitter, on Instagram. Waiting for TikTok. I go to TikTok, the 2023. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't think any of us should go there, but I go to has an Instagram page and a Twitter page, and, and, and its administrators and leaders do, and they go to convention with streamed live on it. That's where I happened to have caught it and watched it. It was incredible. It was beautiful. It added so much value. So that which everyone rejected at first, realized that's where people are. <laughs> are you bothered by the maybe per persistent hypocrisy of, of that? There's a call on the one hand to ban that or to I mitigate that, and yet it's being utilized. Yeah, I have concerns about it because these are our gedolim and these are our rabbanim, and I admire them, and I want to listen and learn from them. But I think that particularly young people feel you don't have credibility if you don't practice what you preach. So if, if, I, if I don't listen to you on that, and you don't listen to you on that, 
So maybe the Mu'atzas puts out one messaging about it, the internet or social media, and then the very organization that supposedly is dictated by the Mu'atzas is not listening to them. Why would I listen to them, not only on this, but on anything else? So that the notion of maintaining credibility, I think is a big question. Uh, it's a question, I'll leave it as a, as a question mark. But I share all of this to come back to your original question to say, I can't imagine things I'm doing other than coming to Baltimore for Shabbos that are not for my community. Because all the things I'm doing are things that are for the community, but just scaled up where others get it. So when I do write a post using social media, I'm talking to the members of my community who that's where they live and they are. I'm recruiting them to our programs. I'm trying to stimulate their thinking and growth. And if other people see it, then great. And if I write an article, it's for our community. If other people read it, great. And if I give a shear, it's for our community. And if other people can see it, great. So I know that there is that perceived tension, even within our own community, somebody might think, well, I want more of his time. But if they take a moment to understand this, they would realize that these tools are all just scaling up, but they're not actually detracting from the enormous amount of time, all the time, which is really local, except when I go to... And I can attest that when I was there, I went to, a, I think it was a Tuesday morning, I was coming to the... Uh 9.30 shachras maybe? I was on vacation, don't judge. Okay, so I was going to the late shachras. Yeah. And you were uh, giving, a, I think, a women's share maybe. And there was like, there must have been 300 people in that, in that room. And they were all local. They come for the coffee. It's free coffee at the shear. Whether it's the coffee or the rabbi, they were there in the, sh in the shul. So they were not on TikTok. So. Um, talking, though, about the fact that you are so committed to the local community. I shared with your Rebbe, a funny anecdote, that somebody came over to me in the lobby of BRS, I just uh, was there for Mincha, I stepped out to the lobby for a second, guy comes over to me, rushing in, he's, he's late, Mincha clearly, he goes, where do I go for Mincha, where do I go for Mincha, <laughs> and I stopped to myself, I thought, this is the most ironic question, I showed up here yesterday, right. and you're asking me where Mincha, now I happen to know, because I had just stepped out, I, know, it's, I told him confidently, it's over there, second door, thank you, but yeah, well, you know, hopefully I'll write a check or something, but I, I was a visitor myself, I was a tourist myself. You are running this community, and this community is a community that is, is, has so much of an influx of people, you know, whether it's from New York or maybe from Baltimore or wherever else. How do you balance that? You have old timers that have lived there for 20, 30, 50 years, and they probably see the shul as their place. And I'm sure you have new people coming in with fresh energy and excitement, and they're probably also used to being assertive in their uh, particular space, and also want to, they want to contribute their energies, and they want to be a part of this community as well. How are you navigating that, that tension? The community is changing enormously. The demographics have shifted, and the biggest change is that people used to move to Boca to be in Boca. They heard about the community, they liked the diversity, they knew the warmth, they understood the pace, and they moved there to be there. Over the last two years, people have moved to Boca to get out of where Running they were. Running from. Right. So I, I say all the time that we should be sending bottles of wine and thank you notes to Governor Cuomo and the governor of uh, California. Newsom, yeah. You know, Newsom, because they, single-handedly, the two of them, really helped the Jewish communal growth of South Florida uh, enormously. So, th so people are now coming, not running to something, but in many cases running away from something, and that runs a risk of changing a dynamic. But we work very hard to say, look, this is who we are, and if you come here, be part of what we are. And for the most part, you know, it's amazing. The fastest growing element of our community, although every element's growing, and I know that because every school's at record enrollment, every school's out of space, every school across the spectrum, um, but a very fast growing segment of the community, um, you could call it the more Hamish community, Hasidim, 
Older Hasidim are buying homes to spend the winter or long periods of time, and not just them, then their children and grandchildren. And are they coming to BRS or they're coming to other parts they come, of the No, they come to BRS. So the early round who first came and loved it, and it was refreshing for them because they were able to experience Yiddishkeit in a different way. Again, this was their passport. They're not ready to come and put their kids in our schools and hook, line, and sink or buy into this, and I totally understand that. Totally understand that. But they have a passport and they're traveling and they're a stage of life that they can. They're not afraid of whatever other things that make people afraid at this point. And they come and they love it. We ran, Yechavet and I ran a trip to Poland several summers ago. We had 40, 50 members of our community. And it's a perfect example. It was across the spectrum. We had on the trip members of the community who still drive on Shabbos to people who wear strimals. And the first night I got up at dinner in Poland and I said, because adults are just like kids. Just like kids. And that first night, everybody sat at a table based on their clique, their friends, their whatever. The icebreakers. It, it was exactly. And I said, you know, it's going to sound melodramatic, but when you run a trip to Poland, that's what you do. I said, you know, when our ancestors went to the crematoria, when they went to the gas chambers, they weren't organized by clique or by what kind of yarmulke they wore or by who knew each other. So the goal is by the last night, we're not sitting this way. We're all intermingled and integrated and we're sitting together. And the Kachav, it was an amazing trip and there's no better place to do that than to walk through there, of course, and, and Eretz Yisrael, the trips to Eretz Yisrael. But what happened there is one of those people who still today is not fully Shammah Shabbos, became best friends with one of the Hasidim and they go to each other's simchas. I love recently one of them made a simcha of a, a grandchild, a great-grandchild, got married in Brooklyn and there's a video of the dancing and it's Mamish all Hasidim and this one guy like right there in the middle. And they're best friends. And that's a beautiful, beautiful image. So our goal is that people move down and blend into what we have and buy into what we have. Not all of it. The person, I'm not asking you to have to subscribe to every person or go to hear every speaker or attend to every program. But don't come down and try to change us. So even though the demographic of who attends might be changing, but the policies and the posture and the approach, our hashkafa, the sharakol, is not changing. We're not going to abandon our core values or what we do. Um, we have outside of our shul an Israeli flag hanging. So this has never happened before. I got, an, I got an email about a month ago from someone who said, I have a Satmar client, a chassid, who wants to vacation. He's thinking about coming to Boca. Is there an Israeli flag on your property? I'd never gotten anything like that before. And I said, yes. And we're not taking it down for his visit unless he's ready to <laughs> write a his, really large his, uh... check. I didn't say that. Um, and maybe he it's made implied. another choice. Maybe he made another choice and he went elsewhere. So as this happened, he went to the Satmar, uh, the Satmar steeple down there. Somewhere. Yeah. But as has happened in other communities all over where people take over a community, that has not happened yet. We're careful, we're cautious, we're concerned about it, I'm not going to lie, but it has not happened. We continue to regularly pound this message all the time. All the time. We try to model it and we try to pound the message home. And the people who've come, like I said, what I have found, and that, that's why I said it, the masses, they love it. They're drawn to it. They love to sit in shul next to someone very different than them and develop a friendship. Again, not necessarily in their home base where you have to make certain choices about the school you put your children into. And there are choices that by definition are going to divide us. I also don't live in some fantasy world. But at least on this, in this way and on these occasions, it's refreshing enormously for them to be exposed and learn and connected with a total diverse range of people. So they may have been running from something, right? But once they got there, 
they realized there's something special yeah. that they yeah, could absorb. Yeah, for the most part, that's been our experience now. now. You mentioned over here, of course, that that you are building this community. The community is growing by leaps and bounds, and, and there's incredible infrastructure. And, and I joked earlier that, but it's true, that you're bringing a yeshiva, the yeshiva of South Florida is coming to a, a boca near you in, in El Mirtashem, and there's a, a very prestigious lineup of, of Rosh Yeshiva and Mashpiyam that are coming. And, and that leads me to my next question, and I guess, well, Yitzi, you'll let me know we have to start close. I'll be here all night, but you can... Uh, it's fine with me, but my flight's not till tomorrow. That's right, so and he's uh, I'm good. Just needs to be somewhat awake. If anyone is bored, I'm not insulted. I can't speak for you, but feel free <laughs> to call it a night. But but we'll, let's keep, we'll keep going. going. Yeah. So I know, by the way, speaking, I mentioned Roy Y Jacobson before, right? So he puts out these podcasts. Sometimes on his podcast feed, you get like a six and a half hour for bringing than he did with like Rupshay's chat tell or like right. on double speed. That's like three and a quarter. It's not so bad, but it's still you know I don't know. So we'll see how long we go, but. You, you are building this strong infrastructure, right? And, and it's a really powerful community. And it's not just BRS. There is many other, within Boca itself, you have many other shuls. I'm not going to list them all. I've been to some of them. And up and down the, the, the coast. And yet, I know, I know that you are a person who is very, very passionate about Eretz Yisrael and who believes that really our, our heart, if not our bodies, belong in Eretz Yisrael. And you have an Israeli flag outside of the, of the shul. How do you deal with this Again, tension point whereby you're all in on, on building community. You're not putting up flimsy, maybe during COVID there were tents outside, but you're building institutions and these are meant to, meant to last and they're drawing people down. And you know, I don't know that you're necessarily getting up every shop and saying, Rabosai, we're, we're in the wrong place, let's go. You know? And yet there must be a part of you or a part of your heart that, that is stationed over there and, and a part of you that wants to be there your predecessor is there. Your close friend, Rabbi Fass, went and founded the most influential Aliyah organization for North Americans. How do you navigate that? Hi. Robinson, was that good? <laughs> She's like, no, let's get up and go. It's, it's, yeah, here we go. Now let's get, I thought, I thought you were going to ask tough questions. We're going to have some fun with some controversy. Tonight. We're not there yet, so stick around. But um, it's a painful question. We're doing a major expansion right now, an enormous expansion of our campus. And as we've been working on it and raising money for it, I had this ache in my stomach, like, what are we doing? We're further embedding ourselves here in Chutzlar. It's, isn't the writing on the wall, anti-Semitism, the challenges that are happening? Why are we growing? Like, if this energy is going in and we're going to raise this amount of money, which is eight-figure money, so let's use it and just let's all go. But the reality is that if I got up and announced that Yechavad and I, our family, were making Aliyah this summer, and everyone should come with us. They'd make us a really nice goodbye party. I hope, I think. How many would come with us? Maybe there are, are there 30 tzaddik? I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, think I, count, I think I would count on one hand with fingers left over. I once asked Rabbi Riskin, people love to quote Rabbi Riskin as the machaya for all Rabbanim. He got up at Lincoln Square Synagogue, he announced I'm making Aliyah. I found a hill in Efrat, come with me. So I introduced him once that way and said he's Machayev Orabanim. He got up and he said and he went and he didn't correct me on the spot, but afterwards he told me he said how many how many people you think moved with me? He had to put a five thousand dollar deposit to have a home in Efrat. So Manhattan, there were plenty of people who could do that, and to humor their rabbi, they did that. But how many actually got up and went with him? It was a handful, a couple. He didn't move a whole community. The notion, and what I call aliyah snobs from Israel love to send me emails telling me to not talk about anything else but this and get up and announce I'm going because then everyone will come with me and we can move the whole shul. The reality is that's not going to happen. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. 
So I feel very guilty. How are we doing this project? So I asked Moriv Rabbi, I asked Rav Shechter. And he quoted the Gemara Megillah that I see the Batekinesiyah Bavel, and Mashiach comes, all the shuls outside of Israel will lift up off the ground and are going to be transported, and those communities will be established in Eretz Yisrael. So he said, whatever you're putting into it now, you're doing it for Eretz Yisrael, not for now. And that made me feel a whole lot better about that. From question. a person who cries every time he says the word Yerushalayim, I think that Absolutely. has a lot of credibility. Absolutely. So. I want to be in Israel desperately. I have two siblings. They both live in Eretz Israel. My parents have a place and spend half the year in Eretz Israel. I'm the only Goldberg left here on this side of the ocean, and my heart is there. I would be there in a heartbeat and go at every opportunity I have. Corona's been, as it was for you, unbearably painful, limiting us from being able to go. I believe it's the destiny of all the Jewish people. I'm not here to quote all the Makoros, and the Ramban, and Kiyom Mitzvah, and all the Makoros about it. But the reality is that this is what we daven for, and we have the opportunity, and anyone who learns Tanakh understands our failure in history of not answering the call then. And of course it's where we belong. And I say all the time in our community that the question is not if, but when. There are legitimate reasons not to make Aliyah. There's no legitimate reason not to struggle with making Aliyah. To me, there's no legitimate reason to say, I'm here, I'm here to stay, I'm comfortable, I'm happy, it's off the table, I have no interest. Every one of us should ask ourselves and struggle, and there are legitimate reasons that the answer right now is no. Family, professional, parents, children, Rabbanus, there are legitimate reasons not to go. There are no legitimate reasons to me not to be struggling with going. So, you know, I think about it all the time, and I desperately want to be there. We advocate for it. And there are, I think, ways that we can make a difference from here. The truth is, I'm not an expert of history, but somebody should do this study, that throughout, throughout Shas, there were centers of Torah in Eretz Yisrael and outside of it. And I don't know if the Torah centers in Eretz Yisrael were giving the Jews of Bavel aliyah snobbery, or they were exchanging ideas, and we have, of course, the Mesorah that goes back and forth between those two communities. And I'm not saying that we don't all belong there, but if there was no one to lobby Congress here to send $3 billion of aid or renew the Iron Dome or memorandums of understanding about superior military equipment, v'chule, 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 would Israel be better or worse? That's not an excuse Well, we all should stay and just make sure you're involved in APAC and NORPAC and all that. But I think these things are oversimplified and they're more complicated than they are. So basically what I'm saying is, I desperately want to be there. And I will be there. We will be there in Mitzvah one day. We already own plots there, but long before that, I hope we'll be there alive. <laughs> Back to that box thing. Alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Too many people wait to make Aliyah when they're going to be buried there. And we should think about and consider and plan for doing it earlier. But, but my answer is that there are legitimate reasons to not be there yet, but there's no legitimate reason that while we're here, we're not helping and working on there. And I don't care where Hashkafa you are and where you fall in the spectrum, but Hatzalas Yisrael, and the example of the list of things I just said of advocating and lobbying for to make a difference to support these, our brothers and sisters in Eretz Yisrael, I think is a responsibility and incumbent on all of us. What's interesting is that you know, I, I, I do think one of the reasons that people, some people maybe don't go, <clears throat> has to do with the point you made earlier about the Shar HaKolel, the, the 13th gate, so to speak, that where, where would they fit in? Is there a place for that, right? So take it personally. If you moved to Eretz Yisrael this summer, which may Hashem with Mashiach, but if you did it before Mashiach, where would you live? That is a very good question. And we struggle with it. And we spend a lot of time in Eretz Yisrael, and we ask ourselves that because... Does your Rebbetzin also spend uh, the night scrolling through the Nefesh Benefesh yes. city, city uh, real estate? Listen, My wife it, does that. Okay. part of the challenge of, of Eretz Yisrael is it's a lot harder to be outside of a box. For example, there are choices you have to make 
Are you putting your son on a trajectory to join the army or to never go to the army? It's very binary. There's binary choices that, that sort of lock you into communities. I think there's a blurring of some of those lines too. We're seeing some movement on that and the ability to cross certain communities and certain artificial lines there. But it's still very, very challenging. I will tell you a project that we have is, uh, <laughs> is once a day, once, uh, once uh, please God, in the future. We're not there yet and we're working on other things. But we've explored, and we continue to explore, being able to open up a BRS presence in Eretz Israel, not as a permanent, we're making Ali. There's already BRS West, so that's BRS East. It's BRS West, right, East. <laughs> but with the following vision, and it's along the lines of what I was telling you before. People who know Century Village in Boca, which everyone here is grandparents or friends, or My parents were sisters-in-law or whatever, Century Village in, in Boca. These are seasonal communities that people go to knowing that they thrive and flourish seasonally, not all year round. The equivalent of in the Catskills call it a vacation village or some of the bungalows where people go as a community for periods of time, but may or may not include Yamim Tovim where they know this is not where we spend all year round, but we go for units or periods of time. And I don't want to go to the Catskills for my two months, three months, I don't get two or three months off in the summer, but if I could orchestrate and organize my life to have that time off in the summer, I wouldn't want it to be in the Catskills. And Century Village is lovely in the winter in Florida. But wouldn't it be amazing if there were the equivalent of those in Eretz Yisrael, where right now the way it's set up is essentially you either make Aliyah and you live there full time, or you're here and you can visit there for a few days at a time occasionally. But can we create a community, a cohesive community, and a community that programming that allows those who yearn and long and want to be there, but for whatever reason still need to be here, to go for six weeks or two or three months in the summer, certain Yom Tovim during the year, go and feel connected as a community who are spending those units of times together, who have something familiar of a Rav or some programming that they connect with over there, and understanding that the rest of the year they have to be here. There, were, there was a series of years where we went in the summer to Eretz Yisrael, Yechadar also has a sibling there, and we have a lot of family there, and we made the effort to be there. It's not easy, it's not inexpensive, it's a big challenge, it's an enormous privilege if you can pull that off. And those summers, I would tell my children, they laughed at me then, and Kandir laughed at me now, I would say, you know we live in Israel, I just work in America, so we go back during the year. Right? <laughs> but I, I, I said that, and, and you know, they took it as a joke, and it, but I don't mean it as a joke. Can we create that mentality that even if there are reasons we still have to be here, that we live there, but we just work here 11 months of the year. Which is, it sounds amazing, but all, at the same time, what's coming up for me is you're describing really a luxury product. In other words, you know, I'll have a summer home in Caesarea, no problem, right? The, the, it's definitely a luxury and product. And we talk about the, the challenges of from affordability, yes. right? Now talk about layering on to assuage people's guilt. They'll say, okay, well, I'll buy my place in Israel. Right? How would that even happen for most people? No, no, that's a very important. Thank you for pointing that out, because I want to correct that. Uh, and that's a perfect example of an insensitivity. So don't write me the email later. I got it. I learned from it. But a bottom <laughs> or speakers can sit on a panel and make a comment like that, and somebody who's not sure where next week's meal is coming from is going to hear that, and it's very offensive. So you're 100% right. I was not working off an assumption that everybody can buy that second home to use in the summers and fly back and forth several times a year with their whole family and be able to leave work for those years. You're 1,000% right. I communicated that in an insensitive way with certain assumptions that are not true. 100% right. And the majority of of our brothers and sisters probably are saving up for years to be able to go when they haven't been in forever. We have a dear friend in Boca who hasn't been to Eretz Yisrael, he's Batshuva, he Torah many years ago and he hasn't been there in 25, 30 years. I told him he won't recognize it. You won't recognize it if you haven't been there in three years. 
Yerushalayim is being built up and expanded out in every single direction. You won't recognize the train and where it takes you and how it goes. There's a million things that you won't recognize. So we should never take that for granted. And we should work to be able to enable those who can't on their own have that opportunity to go also, 100%. So what I'm describing was not for everybody. In fact, it's for very few. But there is that population, I think, who can't entirely be there full time, but are yearning for an opportunity. And it would be wonderful if somebody made that available to them. Once we're on the topic of affordability, why not? I know that many people are fascinated by it. And we've talked about the Kosher Money podcast, a little bit over Shabbos and, and things that are going on there. Um, how do you see this playing out? Boca is expensive. <laughs> and not, it's not just Boca. It's almost anywhere in South Florida. And it's almost anywhere there's an Eruv and that there's day school. And some people make the argument for Eretz Yisrael based on finances alone, which may or may not be specious. I, I, I don't know. But what's your approach to this entire subject and maybe on, on one foot, perhaps? Eretz Yisrael is not the answer. You shouldn't come to Boca because you're running away from something. And Kalvachomer, Benosha Kalvachomer, you shouldn't go to Eretz Yisrael because you're running away from something because you won't find it. It'll chase you wherever you're going. And affordability is a perfect example where I'm not sure you're going to find a home that you could buy in the neighborhoods we would want to be in for less than what you're getting here. So I don't think that's the reason to go there. Um, what's the specific question? Is it, is it the tuition crisis? Yeah, is it ostentatiousness? I, I don't know. I don't want to get too much in the tuition crisis per se, but the fact that there is a greater and greater, like in the world at large, concentration of wealth among a not insubstantial number of people and an incredibly generous number of people upon whom the communal infrastructure is predicated. And then you have this much larger middle class and the, the challenges that go into that and, and the, the tensions that can emerge when people live not in you know, separate enclaves, but they live together and they daven together. And there's this enormous pressure that people feel, even if they can't necessarily generate much more income or do much to change their, their plight. Do you have guidance for people, even from an emotional or spiritual perspective? Uh, it, well, the first thing I would say is that, and this is much easier to say than it is to live and to feel, is that money is one metric, and it's not the metric for success. I said last night, you know, there's a great quote, I forgot the author of the quote, that, Nebuch, there are some people so poor that all they have is money. I think Nebuch. I heard it from Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg on a no, Shabbos. No, it's not, it's not my quote. <laughs> but, Nebuch, there are people so poor that all they have is money. We know we interact with any Rav, Rebbets, and Do people, sometimes with extraordinary wealth. Extraordinary wealth by every measure. And often comes with it extraordinary unhappiness, extraordinary insecurity, extraordinarily low self-esteem, extraordinarily dysfunctional relationships. There are enormous challenges that come. So Nebuch, there are people who are so poor that all they have is money. So money we should not hold out as the metric of success, the only metric of success. There are many metrics of success, and they're much more authentic, and they're much more real, they're much more, they're much more lasting. Now, is money important? It puts food on the table and a roof over our head, enables us to drive from point A to point B and pay our bills? It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important, and there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and driven and successful. That's also been part of our Mesorah. We've been Mechabed Ashirah. We understand that its role in building Jewish communal life. But it is not, not only not the only, it's not the not most important, but for some people, it, it's not at all the metric of success. They find a lot of success out of it. And I think we need to emphasize that and celebrate that a lot more. I think in our communities, we have the ability to honor people, not just with money, but honor people who give their work or their wisdom, not only their wealth. 
whom we choose to honor at our institutional dinners and events and who we speak about and which hand we run to go shake and a willingness to pass by others, is it always the Ashirim? Or are we willing to also lift up and honor and, and hold up those who contribute other things that they can? And by the way, as, just to interject, as a Rav, are you cognizant of that? In other words, when you're shaking somebody's hand after davening, are you thinking, I'm going to Mr. Cohn because Dafka, I want to be mechab at him. Yeah, no, I try to be. I try to be. We talk all the time and we honor. In our shul, Simchas Torah night, the Ataharesas are not purchased and they're not given out as a kibud. It's very stressful for me because I don't have a working list. I don't know necessarily who will be in the room. It's among the most, if you really, you really want to go like. We're getting in the weeds over here, yeah. want to go like behind <laughs> the bima over here, like the stressful parts of the rabbin are not the Shabbat Russia. It's Ataharesa night. Very stressful. You can't punt that but, to Rabbi Moskowitz, huh? No, although <laughs> Rabbi Moskowitz are right behind me feeding me names. But I give out each Ataharesa line, and I acknowledge somebody. This one collects the pushkas every day. This one puts away the sederim. Thank you for setting up the shiva homes. So-and-so is mechubit with the next line. They're the one who organizes the bikacholim. It has nothing to do with money or wealth. Ataresa, one of the biggest kibudim of the year, where the shul is packed, simchas Torah night. Everybody's super excited. Kids are on their shoulders. Men and women, everybody's in shul. It's given out to looking around that room. Who are the people who do the little things that keep the community up and stable and happy. It's not who wrote the biggest check or whose name is on the building. It's, it's all the other people. And I'm not saying that we've got it perfect, far from it, or that I'm perfect, very far from it. Uh, but I think that's one way that we can communicate and really practice, not just talk. The value system and the definitions of success is it's not only or just money. And I think as communities we can do a lot better, a whole lot better, in standards of living or what people need to do to be keeping up. The housing prices in Boca are insane. I wish I could control that. I can't. They're absolutely insane. There are other costs of living that are very high. Tuitions are very high. But one thing that has not come to us yet, and we're hoping it doesn't make its way, that does exist in other communities. I don't believe it exists in Baltimore. It's one of the beauties, I think, of this community. I hope I'm not speaking out of line. But we don't have competition that our children all need designer clothing based on the new season. You throw out last seasons and everyone needs, as they grow sizes, designer clothing and fashion and keeping up and being able beyond what anyone can afford and they're going into deep debt in order to be able to compete. We don't have that. And I think it's a communal responsibility to keep that out. Don't bring it here. We have people who have enormous wealth and they're wearing, I'm sure, very expensive things and nobody knows and nobody cares. It's just not part of the fabric. It's not part of the conversation. It's not part of keeping up. And I don't know that we actively work on that. It's the culture of the community, and I hope it stays that way. I hope it stays that way. Um, but we don't have that. We don't have, because we're out of town. We're not out of town. We're, <laughs> we're the new in town. Um, I'll give you one other example and pass it back to you. But Kiddishes, we were at Family in New York this summer. And we learned about somebody who had a grandchild who was scheduled to make a kiddush, and the week before, a friend of hers made a kiddush for the birth of a grandchild. And then this original person canceled their kiddush, didn't have it in the end. Because the first person's kiddush that had a martini bar and sushi stations and charcuterie boards, and I'm making this up, but I'm imagining, and we've seen it, you know, a kiddush that is whatever. So the second person said, you know what a busha will be the kiddush I was going to put out? Shtickle herring and some tam-tams and some kichel and some shalons. <laughs> no, whatever I was going to put right. out. I can't do that. It's a busha. So better I'll have no kiddush than the kiddush. What a tragedy for Klal Yisrael. The kiddush is make a bracha. I had an anical. Make a bracha. Come share in my simcha. 
By the way, I love, if anyone's listening or watching anywhere, you want to get a gift. I love dry meat. I'm a charcuterie guy, jerky. I, it's made here, I heard. Baltimore. What's it called? I can't even pronounce it. Yeah, they had a big sale, by the way. I just ordered a whole uh, case of... Uh, of jerky. You guys, you know what to get the rabbi now. Teriyaki uh, jerky. It's fantastic. Home. I love charcuterie. The as much as, is coming up. I, got the I like charcuterie <laughs> as much as the next person. But I'm just saying the combination of all of this in an over-the-top type of way, which creates this competition that you can't live up to, to the point that you get to somebody cancels a kiddush or simcha because they're afraid they can't keep up and they'll be embarrassed. So there are, what the solution is to the tuition crisis there's a lot of people thinking about it, talking about it for a long time. I think Yitzhi has it, by the way. I'm, we'll, not we'll sure. I'm not sure I have the solution to the tuition crisis or the housing crisis. There are a lot of things that are out of our hands or they're complicated or they're, you know, it's, it's hard to bring back. But there are things that we can keep doing, which is when it comes to fashion and clothing or it comes to kiddushes and simchas, there are things that are in our control to try to maintain that culture and to say, not here, not in our backyard. Don't bring this here, don't do this here. You can have elegant, you can have beautiful, you can have enjoyable, you can have delicacies, but, but, but with class, not over the top. Not that you walk in a room and you're, wow, now I'm impressed. Because the competition that creates that people can't live up to, that's what's disastrous, and that's what puts people in debt. It's personal achrayas and, and the accumulation of those so. small choices. And, and, and maybe the biggest achrayas is on the people, the most capable of doing it, to hold back. Yes, it wouldn't put a dent in who I am and what I can afford to have an over-the-top outrageous simcha. But I'm not going to. Not for myself because it will impact me, but because that's my commitment to the tzibur. Now, you can't do too little either. You know, when the enormously affluent person has too simple a simcha, they're also attracting attention. I once heard someone make that insight. It was fascinating. If somebody who everybody knows is a major philanthropist gvir can afford is successful, not in an ostentatious way, but it's known about them, makes an over-the-top simple simcha, everyone will also be talking about them and giving too much attention. So there's a, there's a fine line. A person has to walk that balance between being elegant and appropriate, betamt, but not in a way that creates a pressure or a competition that people can't live up to. I want to ask you one or two questions. I can start wrapping up probably, Itzi, but... One or two questions that are, I think... Just because uh, he's nodding off, you have to wrap up? <laughs> More because his wife is nodding. <laughs> he's wide awake, he's wide awake. He's he's good. Good. Yeah, um, Speed round, lightning so round. We're getting there, we're getting there. But, I, but first I want to ask you one or two questions that emanate from my own personal interests. So I'm, I'm up here, so I'm going to be selfish for a minute. But, you know, as somebody who invests my own career and life and passion into, into Kirov, into outreach, into the broader Jewish world... Um, I often think about and struggle. Can I, can I take a second to thank you for that? Because okay. you're at the front lines of fighting for Klai Yisrael. And, you know, Rabbanus has a lot of pain and challenges, but it also has a lot of covet and joy and satisfaction. And I'm going to get a lot of jerky in the mail this week, which I'm really excited <laughs> about. But, but what you're doing, we talked about last night, when you're on college campuses and the amount of rejection that you take to trying to break through to those few Talmudim and students you could get through and to be doing it, how long are you doing it? About 18 years. 18 years is the front line of fighting for Klal Yisrael to stop. We all complain over our kiddush about assimilation and intermarriage. You're doing something about it, so thank you very much. But on that note, Rabbi, and thank you. That was that was a masterful uh, <laughs> way to flip that back onto me. But uh, you must be a pulpit rabbi. But <laughs> I, I do want to ask it because in your uh, in your shul, you do something which is I think very unique, and and I'm not 
entirely clear about it, uh, exactly the parameters of it and, and what happens, but you have a, an outreach rabbi on staff, Rabbi Brody. I think he's been doing it probably longer than I've been doing it. He's been there for a long time, and I know he was maybe with the Federation, and I've kind of, again, watched from afar and read things and, and so forth. But I think it's extremely unusual. Um, you know, it, it's unusual for any orthodox shul, and much less for one that is so large and so, could so easily claim a need Internally, you know, and I, I hear this, you know, I argue with people all the time about communal priorities and what should we, where does the money go and where should our time go? And oh, we have cure of Krovim and we have other, and by the way, I'm, I acknowledge all of those needs and causes, but 90% of Klaistral, bottom line, 80 to 90% of Klaistral is not, you know, davening Mincha and BRS on an on a average Tuesday. And you have somebody on staff who's designated to do something about that. What inspired that? Where did that come from? First of all, the person who that is, Rabbi Josh Brody, our outreach rabbi, was the youth director in this shul. Wow. They lived in Baltimore. Okay. He was the youth director here. Little piece of information that apparently I'm a lot more excited about than any of you. <laughs> I think anyway, it was meant to generate an applause. Let's, let's just be honest for a second. Give it up for Rabbi Maybe Brody. Maybe he was a very bad youth director. I don't think so. <laughs> rabbi Brody is the most from Ner Yisrael, Talmud of Rabbi Friend. He was the youth director here in Baltimore. There we go. Baltimore people don't even get excited about Baltimore. <laughs> okay. Um, in about 10 or 15 years, everyone will start clapping. That's the joke. There we go. <laughs> There's a great economist at the University of Chicago, Milt Friedman, who said, if you want to know what someone values, then check what they spend money on. If you want to know what someone cares about, don't listen to what they say. Get their credit card bills. Go through someone's budget and you'll know what they really care about. People talk all the time what they care about, but what we spend on is what we care about. So we made the argument to our shul that do we care about Kirov or do we pay at lip service? Palm Beach County, where we live, these numbers are astounding. Stuart, listen to these numbers. Our beloved Stuart used to live in Boca. Listen to these numbers where we're at now. Boca Raton and Delray, which are neighboring communities, but Boca Raton, or the greater Boca Raton, has 140,000 Jewish people. That's more than most countries in the world. Palm Beach County has more than a quarter of a million, it's about 300,000 Jews. The demographic study said, came out with the following result. What percentage do you think of them are affiliated? 300,000 Jews in Palm Beach County, what percent are affiliated? Now let me tell you the definition of affiliated. Definition of affiliated is not Mincha Tuesday at BRS. Definition of affiliated for the purpose of this study was, if you work out at the JCC, you are considered to be affiliated. You don't have to work out your neshama, you don't have to learn the daf, you don't have to make it to Kol Nidre. If you work out in the JCC, you're affiliated. And what do you think the percentage of affiliated was out of 300,000 in Palm Beach County? Affiliated? I would affiliated. Say, I would say 35%. But the JCC, 90%. You say? 35%. 35%. 8%. 8%. Wow. 8%. 92% wow. are unaffiliated. I think seven's at BRS alone. I know. Now you have to understand, you know why they're unaffiliated? Boca Raton is 51% Jewish. Every other home in Boca is a Jewish home. It is enormously, densely, Jewishly populated community. That creates an opportunity. It creates an enormous challenge. You know what the they challenge the is? Design. If you live in Des Moines, Iowa, if you live in Kalamazoo, and you're Jewish and you crave seeing another Jew, interacting with another Jew, you have to go someplace to find a Jew, a Jewish place, which could be a shul, a synagogue, a federation. If you're in Boca and you want to see another Jew, you just look out your window. So you don't have to come and connect. The Jews of Boca worship at the altar of the country club. They don't have to worship at the altar of a shul. Because in their country club, over the lobster and crab, are their fellow Jews. 
The intermarriage rate is astonishing. Outside of orthodoxy, it's over 70%, seven out of 10 Jews. And that's not popular to say. It's in our talking about it. It used to be that you worked in a federation world or with non-orthodox and you had in common trying to fight assimilation and intermarriage. But in the communities that are suffering the most from that, they've just created new definitions and moved the goalposts. So my colleagues in Boca say that we no longer call it intermarriage. We didn't lose a Jew, we just gained, we gained someone else. You tell me, can we afford to not do outreach? 300,000 Jews all around us, 92% of whom are not affiliated whatsoever, don't observe, don't know, don't keep, don't do. They don't have the gift and the luxury that we have, and many of us, not all of us, grew up with. What right do we have not to be doing it? What right do we have? What entitlement do we have not to be doing it? I'm sure, and I'm not here to preach to Baltimore, I'm sure in Baltimore there are non-affiliated people all around as well. There are Jews all around, they're disappearing. What right do we have not to? I worked for a summer in Eisha Torah. It was after my uh, two years in Karen I came back to YU, and the next summer I was a Madrich in Eisha Torah with Gershon Seifers and Avi Pollack. And our job then, you want to know how ADD the whole world has gotten, then discovery was two and a half days, now I think it's two and a half hours. Two hours, yeah, three hours. Right? Discovery seminar today is two hours in Eisha Torah, then it was two and a half days. So our job was go find people who had no plans for the next two and a half days. Go find somebody and recruit them. So we're the natural places to go and do that. We would plant ourselves at the Kotel and find that backpacker and go up to them. And where did they want us to do it? They wanted us to do it on Ben Yehuda. So, Ben Yehuda, Ben Teira. Ben Teira, Meir Shemayim, are you kidding me? Spent two years in Yeshiva avoiding Ben Yehuda at all costs. I'm gonna go sit on Ben Yehuda and go up to strangers and I'm gonna invite them to the Discovery Seminar. So I resisted, I hesitated, and they took us into Rav Noach. And I'll never forget, Rav Noach looked like astoundingly, and he said, let me ask you a question. You don't want to go to Ben Yehuda? Let me ask you a question. He said, you're standing on the platform. There's a train pulling out, and it's going to Auschwitz, and a woman extends her hand for you to pull her off. Are you going to say, I can't take her hand? Are you going to watch her go on a train to Auschwitz? He didn't say it as some, I mean, it was phenomenal creating guilt, and it was an amazingly manipulative comment. Yes. But that's not why he said it, I don't believe. I didn't know him well, but I had the privilege that summer of a couple of conversations. He didn't say it to be manipulative, he said it because he meant it. There's a famous video of him taking a group of Eishat rabbis to Poland and saying the same. I'm talking about, he, he believed it, he lived it, he dreamed it, and, and, he, and he created branches all over to fight it. That's what he believes. So, I, you know, suffice it to say, we spent the next few weeks on, on Ben Yehuda, trying to find people and draw them in, and we didn't take anyone's hand, but Metaphorically, we were willing to, like the paraduma, be metame ourselves to try to be metire others because it was Hatzalas Yisrael. Because you see, the numbers were not nearly then what they are now. In Rav Noach's time, intermarriage was a fraction of what it is today. I don't think we understand what 70% is. You understand what that means to our population, to our future, to our continuity? And these are our brothers and sisters, these are the neshamas. And again, there are many makoros about Hashavah Saveda and L'saman Adam Reyecha, and if it applies physically, it applies spiritually. This is what it is. So again, I don't, I don't think that we have a luxury in Baltimore or in Boca of saying, we're focused on the from. We're focused on the from. And we're prioritizing our inreach. But we also have to care about and be focused on, on the outreach. How you do it, and how you reach them, and where you find them, and what difference we can make, that's a whole strategy, and that's a whole conversation. But it matters, it makes a difference. And Baltimore can be very proud that Rabbi Brody is being successful each and every day. There you go, give him a hand of applause. <laughs>
finally, and then we'll get to the lightning round. I just want to ask, I have to, uh, many people have now come to know you through your podcast, Behind the Bima, which is uh, the triumvirate of yourself and Rabbi Moskowitz and Rabbi Brody, you just mentioned. And you've had some very interesting guests, of course, I'm sure the least popular episode, Ben Shapiro, you didn't get any feedback, I'm sure, on that one. You had Sheryl Sandberg on for a few minutes. You got David Lichtenstein, not to answer any personal questions, but you got him on. But you've had some wonderful guests and many up on him and many interesting people. I imagine this began as a, a pandemic project and, and something, you know, bored on a Wednesday night kind of thing. But now I'm sure that it's been a journey and that you've actually learned quite a bit from it. And, you know, as someone who, who's invested in the world of podcasting and has taken off yours a life of its own, what do you enjoy about it? And what opportunities is it offering you now that are different than all the other teaching opportunities, even the live streaming and the, the use of technology, everything you were doing before that, which was scaled, as you, as you said, but podcasting in some ways is just different. So like everything I told you before, we started this for our community. We were shut down, I'll never forget that Friday, coming on the two-year anniversary of it, where our local hospital asked us, remember, two weeks to flatten the curve? If we would shut down. Two years to flatten the curve. And we got together, <laughs> right or wrong, but we had a meeting in my office, and we were close to a minion, so we recruited two more to go Dava Mincha in the shul before we announced to the community we were shutting down. And, and that, it was historical and historically painful. I'll never forget it. So we felt distanced from our members. So what do we do? We pivoted for our shiurim online, and now we were streaming. But membership is not just about the shiurim. We were talking about this earlier today also. I forgot which great Adam Gadol it was who gave a shir after the Holocaust and would sit with survivors. And before he began the Gemara shir, they would sit. Not they say about it. I think. They, they would sit and they would banter and they would talk. And somebody said, no, it's Bittal Torah. Why, well, you got to start the Gemara shir. To which he responded, why does every Masechta start on Daf Beis? Because Daf Aleph is the conversation. Every Masechta starts on Daf Beis because Daf Aleph is the shmooze, the conversation. How are you? How are your children? How are your parents? What's happening in your life? So with Corona, we weren't able to have that. You could give a shear online, but you weren't able to have that. So the three of us started this. We called it Coffee Talk. We did it Wednesday nights, and this is what's going Linda on in our lives. <laughs> no, this, Mike Myers. Right, right. right. This, this is what's going on in our lives, and this is how we're making our decisions. This is how we're handling things, and just to feel we were connecting with people. And then we started bringing on a guest, and now we've had 80 episodes, and we've had enormous array of great Rabbanim, leaders, judges, NFL owners, Prime Minister of Israel, Chief Rabbi of Israel, CEO of Facebook. We, we've had an enormous, diverse array of, of personalities. And it's free. Our community's had the greatest Ghana residence program in the world, 80 guests, that we haven't spent one penny on. We haven't paid one person one penny. We don't spend one penny on advertising or promoting. And what makes me the most excited about it is nothing that I say on it. We just banter and have fun, and I can't believe people watch it or care about it. Actually can't believe people watch it or care about it. But the guests we have have such inspirational messages. The Rav Machlis episode. Rav Machlis is a mamish. We went to Israel a couple months ago, and one of my daughters who's here spent her year and a half volunteering in, in Rav Machlis's home, and took us late one night right before we left to go see him. And my conclusion was, when you come to Eretz Yisrael, okay, maybe go to different Kivrei Tzadik, and maybe go get brachas from different Gedolim, but go to see Rav Machlis. Go to see Rav Machlis, you want to be still, He's still doing it, even. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, un it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So these episodes, each of these people, last week we had this woman who's a farmer in Eretz Yisrael who's keeping Shemitah Kehilchasa, and she's describing the Nisiyonas and the Mesir Snefesh, but also the bracha that's come into her life of keeping Shemitah. And I got emails from all over, people, you're crying when you listen to her interview. So I don't care for me, but 
bringing the messages of these people out there is amazing. Bob Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, and I don't know, as a New Yorker, I hate the Patriots. <laughs> this was the hardest Super Bowl, because I didn't know who to vote, I didn't know who to root against, because even Brady wasn't even in it on another team, so like, it wasn't worth it. So, but Bob Kraft, on the interview we had with him, he, his whole childhood, he had a tremendous affinity to Pirkei Avos, and the whole interview, without prompting, he just kept quoting Pirkei Avos. So you have an NFL owner who's talking about Eretz Yisrael and talking about Pirkei Avos, talking about anti-Semitism, and talking about intermarriage. He does not run in a circle where it's easy and comfortable to talk about we have to stop intermarriage, but that's all he talked about. So the, the exciting part to me about the podcast is interacting with, but really bringing the messages of people out there that hopefully get us to think differently and inspire and stimulate us. Beautiful. Okay, we're, gonna, we're on to lightning round, Yitzi. Okay, you ready? If these are 30 seconds or less answers. If, if, we'll see uh, where we go. So first of all, where do you, where do you go for your news? Getting, getting good quality news, new, best news site that you like? It's a disaster. There's no I, good news site. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I, 30 seconds, remember. I like Drudge Report. Okay. Even still, he kind of switched. Drudge Report swung from right to left. Okay, He's just, actually coming back now towards coming back? the center. Okay. We used to subscribe, and it was a good Shabbos, whatever, reading. The Week, <laughs> which also lost the week used to represent. It was a great way to catch up on news without having to actually read any of these. Um, it's hard to find objective, accurate news these days. So I don't subscribe to... Maybe the Boca read. newsletter from the rabbi's desk. It could be. It could be. <laughs> I rely on people to send me articles that they think have value. Okay, favorite Jewish book and then favorite secular book. And Jewish book, let's, let's make it more contemporary, not, uh, you know, obviously, gracious. <laughs> the Ketzaisa. Right. Don't give the from answer, basically. That's exactly. Um, favorite, or what did you read over Shabbos, as maybe your, uh, <laughs> your, your cousin might say. Yeah. Favorite um, Jewish book. I was recently reading um, the book about Rabbi Grossman, who we had on Behind the Bima. Yeah, I've been, I'm working on that one too, by the way. So it was, you, okay. I love these books that make you feel so small. So I like biographies. Um, they're a tremendous inspiration. Tal Ben Shachar, who taught the happiness. the happiness class at Harvard, the most popular class in his, Harvard's history. When he spoke at our shul, he said, he said, I make a living off the self-help genre. Don't read self-help books. My books. He said, if you want to grow and change and be inspired, read biographies. Oh. Biographies are the biggest tool to break out and change your life read biographies, and we have no shortage from Rebbe Tzimachos and Rebbe Tzimkanievsky and Yibad Rechaim Tov Ma'aruchem, Rabbi Grossman, the Disco Rabbi, and many, many others. Amazing, amazing books. And then secular. Secular book is whatever I'm reading at the time, but there's a book that had a huge impact on me called Essentialism, Greg McKeon, yeah. How to Reduce Your Life to the Essential, The Art of Saying No. I'm still trying to practice it, but I think about it all the time, and it is a great, great book. Seven um, Habits, Highly Effective People, we quoted this morning, Covey. There we go. Book. The hobby you rely on to de-stress. I know you, I know you got out there on the tennis court on, on Arab Shabbos. I I'm not going to ask there. for the score. Yeah, the score, it's, yeah, only because he's the host. Just he's very good. You have to let him win, he's right? Good. He's very good. He sometimes beats me, sometimes. Yeah. What's our record? We split usually. Yitzi and I played four <laughs> sets on Friday without taking a break for a drink of He's water. He's very intense about that, by because the way. Because each of us That's part of the other strategy, by the break. way. That's part of a strategy. Well, it worked because it was hard to get up here on the stage tonight. <laughs> so it worked. I, I like to play tennis. I don't have a lot of time. Um, I will tell you, I like comedy. I like listening to favorite, comedy. So favorite artist? There are clean comedians. Brian favorite. Regan, who's your, who's your? Brian Regan, Jim Gaffigan. There's a few. Stephen Wright, for the most part, is a very sharp, witty. There are a few clean comedians. Ever go to Dry and Bar Comedy? That's the, a great Mormon site. They have, it's a Mormon comedy bar. No. Out of Utah, Dry Bar. Really? Robinson, your new date night, Dry Bar Comedy. Good to Check know. it out. Thank you my, to my wife, Malka, for this. Good to yeah. know. Um, OK, the best gift you've ever received? It's like Tim Ferriss here. 
Best gift I ever received is a charcuterie Not board you put in, the mail, <laughs> in the mail right now. Uh, what's the best gift I ever received, Yecheved? Best gift I ever received from my wife, she's gonna blush there right now and yeah. kill me for this, is a beard trimming bib. <laughs> so that, you don't get it all over the sink. It has two yeah. suction cups that go on the mirror and a bib that connects behind your neck, and as you trim, it collects everything. I don't know if that was a gift for her. That's good for her, me, yeah. But <laughs> best gift. Was that on Amazon, Robinson? Okay, but if you could post the link in the show notes afterwards, I think a lot of wives I'm in trouble. will be eternally grateful. <laughs> I'm in trouble. And it's a great uh, gift. Okay, and, and, and a little bit more uh, seriously, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, and again, six, we'll give you 60 seconds on this one, okay? We're going to be generous. Most challenging failure that you've, that you've experienced. We won't start the 60 till you start talking. What would you say? <laughs> Phone a friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm phoning a friend. Um, most challenging failure. We've tried all kinds of things at the shul that haven't worked. Programs that we thought were brilliant and amazing and will break through, and we were the only ones who thought that. And we learned every time from it. Um, there was a summer in my life. This was the, you know, Baruch Hashem, the only time, but it had a big impact on me and ended up being very good, where... Um, Based on my experience one summer in a camp, the next summer I was not entirely invited back. <laughs> but because of that, I'll tell you offline the behavior that, <laughs> but, but because of that, it sent me in a different direction. So even though it was painful in the moment, it changed, uh, changed me tremendously, so I'm grateful for that. Okay, just two more scholar in residence who has not yet passed through Boca, if it's possible, I don't know. Um, could be a religious clergy of any persuasion. I'm just joking. It could be any, any guest who has not yet passed through wow, Boca. We long. got late. It was late. I figured I could it's throw okay, it in there. Okay. Anybody's still paying attention. But no, any, any scholar in residence who has not yet uh, passed through the, the halls of, Boca, of uh, BRS that you'd love to see. There's many. There's countless who haven't come to Boca yet. Who we try to get that we haven't gotten? Rabbi Y.Y. Jacob. Y.Y. Okay, Y.Y. If you're listening, Rabbi Y.Y. This is your invitation. It's very hard to get. We he is hard to get. to get him. There are, there are still Rosh Yeshiva we haven't had in speakers. Who else have we tried to get that we haven't had yet? And again, maybe a non, let's try a non we don't, I don't, I don't, from answer, I, like a no, general. No, we don't really take no for an answer very well. So when we want to get someone, we, we basically can, we try. It's not always successful, but we try really hard to be able to get them and bring them. And for the most part, we've been zochet to succeed. We've had an enormous array. We have a base medrash as part of our shul, a base medrash of BRS, and we have a Rosh Hashiva series, and monthly we bring a Rosh Hashiva, and we've had Rav Asher Weiss and Rav David Kohn, Rav Ephraim Waxman, Mwai Rosh Hashiva, and an enormous array, and we try to not take no because... And by the way, just to be fair, I mean, it's not that hard to say no to come to Boca for a Shabbos. Correct. <laughs> we don't have the winter. June, July, and August. You're not, it's easy you're not to asking them no. to come to you know, Baltimore where it's 70-mile-an-hour winds. It's easy to say no in those times, but we haven't had them. I'm going to have to come up with some good answers for these questions in the future. But I'm not sure. We don't take no for an answer, so if we want someone, we'll, we'll run it, really we'll run it back next time. And then finally, of course, you may, you may be aware that our, our gracious host and, and a partner over here own a, uh, a wonderful kosher establishment in town, Pliables, Acai Bowl. There's like 16 names for it. Let's give it together. There we go. And free advertising. If you're ever in Baltimore, it's in the quarry, right? It's in the quarry. Great blueberries, I hear. Great blueberries. <laughs> Favorite Acai Bowl uh, concoction? I've never had an Acai Bowl in my life. As you might guess, more of a meat and potatoes guy. <laughs> lactose, uh, you know, like most Ashkenazim, lactose intolerant. So, of course. You know, you have power of things there? Anything meat-flavored? Meat a charcuterie acai. <laughs> charcuterie acai, I'm in. I am in. Smoked acai But I have not, I've never had one yet. Okay. I well, got to go for a par of acai bowl after this. You still open? 
I think he, I think they have the keys though. They you can missed probably, it? They can probably get you in there. Yeah. Okay, tomorrow. We'll say about that. But, uh, Never had one yet, but look forward. Okay, well, reason to come back to Baltimore. And Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you for staying. So kind of you. This was really great. All right, thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.